0: Hi, everybody. My name is Stefan Molyneux, and I'm the host of Freedom Radio, which is the largest philosophy show in the world. As we are in the closing few days of the trial of George Zimmerman for the death of Trayvon Martin, I thought I would share a few thoughts. I hope you will make it through this presentation. I think it's quite important. We start with some caveats. I'm certainly no legal expert, and I really don't care that much about some of these largely manufactured stories that are actually distracting us, I think, from more important stories. But that having been said, this really could turn into quite an important story. As you may remember, in the wake of the 1992 riots in Los Angeles after the Rodney King beating acquittal, there were 53 murders, 2,400 injuries, uh, 3,000 businesses were ruined, and there was over a billion dollars worth of property damage, which tragically uh, took place in some of the poorest neighborhoods in North America. So um, I do actually want to get some information out there for people, if it can help calm a few rioters and so on, may in fact save some lives. So I hope that you will stay with me through the presentation. So, just in case you've been on Marseille, let's talk about George Zimmerman. He is a Hispanic-American, oddly enough, referred to in the media as a white Hispanic, you know, the way that they refer to Barack Obama as a white black. Uh, He's a Hispanic-American. He lives in a gated community in Sanford, Florida. It's called the Retreat at Twin Lakes. Uh, He was raised in a racially integrated household. He has black roots through an Afro-Peruvian great-grandfather. Uh, as a young man, he partnered with a black friend to start a business. Uh, he and his wife mentored and tutored minority children for free. Uh, when one of their neighbors, who is a black woman, had a home invasion from some young black men, uh, they said, "He has a key to our place, you can come over whenever you like, our house is your house, and so on. So, It does not seem to be a huge amount of racial uh, bias, uh, quite the contrary. Zimmerman uh, has been arrested to, had been arrested twice in the past. Uh, one was a charge for domestic assault, which was dropped, and there was another charge of resisting arrest. Uh, That was reduced uh, so that he was no longer charged with any violence in resisting arrest. In Sanford, Zimmerman actually led the inquiry into the official death of a black homeless man. Zimmerman publicly criticized the Sanford Police Department for allegedly covering up the January 2011 beating of a black homeless man by the son of a white police officer, which resulted in the resignation of then Sanford Police Chief Brian Tooley. So took on... A pretty white bunch of cops in defense of a homeless black man uh, and actually did have some real effects. Not the profile of your average KKK member. Now, in this gated community, about 20% of the residents uh, are black. And there was a problem. Uh, as you probably know, in Florida, the house prices have, have really collapsed uh, since the housing crash of 2008 and onwards. Lots of um, uh, unoccupied homes, lots of problems with crime. There were at least eight burglaries from November 2010 to February 2012 which were committed by black men with dozens more unreported to the police. Uh, drugs, vandalism, and theft had become a constant problem in the community. Uh, in July 2011, a young black man stole Zimmerman's bike from his home. The next month, his wife saw one fleeing a burglarized home. Now, let's look at uh, Trayvon Martin. Uh, of course, you probably saw the pictures of this uh, cherub-faced young boy of 11 or 12. Uh, the reality is he was a 17-year-old young black man. He was 5'11", 158 pounds, a footballer. Muscular, Uh, he was a possible drug dealer who had been suspended from school for carrying around a baggie with pot residue. Uh, He was actually um, uh, sent to to his father and his father's girlfriend um, in Sanford because he had been suspended and his mother, or stepmother, I think, was worried about things. Uh, He was messaged on on social media, damn, where you at, a nigger need a plant, which I assume does not mean a hydrangea. And when a security guard searched his backpack, backpack after he tagged WTF uh, at the school, the security guard found uh, women's rings, earrings uh, and a screwdriver, which was described as a burglary tool. Uh, to be clear, there's no evidence that Trayvon Martin was associated with any of the burglaries uh, in the gated community. I just really want to be clear about that of course, it's pretty new to the community. Martin had previously been in fights, one he won by hitting his opponent in the nose, drawing blood, and one he lost because his opponent got him on the ground. We'll get into more of that in a moment. Martin tested positive for mar- marijuana use after his death. He had pictures of himself using marijuana and growing marijuana plants. Again, to be perfectly clear, the levels that were tested, uh, the, he tested positive, the levels were very low, uh, so that's important to understand. Uh, he was also attempting to acquire or sell an illegal firearm, according to his um, cell phone. So he was at uh, Sanford, as I mentioned, because he was suspended at school, uh, and he told or bragged to his friends that he was bringing marijuana uh, to to Sanford. So um, this doesn't mean anything in terms of, therefore, he could get shot. I mean, 40% of American teenagers use marijuana. I'm completely for drug legalization, so it's not an issue of that. Uh, but uh, marijuana does impair judgment, can cause paranoia, and so on. So these are just factors. They're certainly not proofs of anything in particular. These are just, it's just information. And I'm trying to provide you information that may not have been provided by, you know, the significantly race-baiting mainstream media. So, uh, Martin and a female friend on November 21st, three months before his death, after he told her he was tired and sore from a fight, she asked him why he fought. Uh, BAE is shorthand for babe. So, Martin, uh, cause man, that nigger snitched on me. Friend, Bay, you're always fighting, man. You got suspended? Martin, no, we thumped after school in a ducked off spot. Friend, oh, well, damn me. Martin, I lost the first round, sad face, but won the second and third round. Friend, oh, so it was three rounds. Damn, well, at least you won. Laugh out loud, but you need to stop fighting, Bay, for real. Martin, Nay, I'm not done with fool. You're going to have to see me again, friend. No, stop. You ain't going to be satisfied till you suspend it again, huh? Martin. Nah, but he ain't bleed enough for me. Only his nose. Not unimportant that somebody had a history of fighting, a knowledge of fighting. Uh, he'd been studying some mixed martial arts, uh, and this comes into the narrative a little bit later, and that he knew how to hit people in the nose to make their nose bleed and so on. Again, it doesn't prove anything. It's really clear about this. It's just background information that I think is not irrelevant, if that makes any sense. All right, so let's talk about the walk. So Trayvon Martin left the apartment and took a mile-long walk in the pouring rain in a hoodie to buy Skittles and an Arizona watermelon fruit juice cocktail. Now, it could be that he was just jonesing for some sugar, but that seems like a pretty long and uncomfortable trip to take just for some candy and a soft drink. Could be another reason as to why He was so keen to get a hold of these things. Uh, The fruit juice cocktail and the Skittles are two ingredients in a druggy concoction known as lean. Scissor or purple drank, which requires codeine, uh, soft drink and candy. According to his Facebook posts, Martin had been using lean since at least June 2011, when, uh, tragically, he was separated from his primary caregiver. June 27, 2011, Martin asks a friend, You now a connect for codeine. Uh, You are now a connection for codeine. He tells his friend that Robitussin and soda could make some fire ice lean. I had it before and wants to make some more. His father's girlfriend's house was 100 yards from Zimmerman's truck, and the confrontation occurred 70 yards from this woman's house, uh, the, the tragic confrontation. So what are the drug effects of lean? High doses are sometimes compared to the effects of other dissociatives, such as PCP or ketamine. A DXM, that's as part of the ingredients in Robert Hussen, causes physical and psychological effects that may be frightening or unpleasant. Psychological effects can include profound disorientation, depression, a feeling of personal disintegration, or a feeling of unreality, and disconnection that may persist for days. Chronic use may cause depression, psychological dependency, and possibly brain damage. Large doses may be associated with psychotic breaks. A few people, uh, this is a person writing about it, and the sources for everything I'm talking about will be in the low bar or in the notes to the podcast. A few people seem to be greatly susceptible to DXM addiction, and some of these have suffered long-term health consequences. A very few may have suffered permanent brain damage from extremely heavy use of DXM, an 8-ounce bottle of maximum strength syrup every day. On the other hand, some people consume the same amount for years, seemingly without consequence. And while some people can consume DXM regularly, without psychological consequences, others suffer from severe depression and psychotic breaks, even leading to a few cases of suicide attempts. And this uh, this can result in bad trips, psychotic breaks, psychological addiction and depression and irreversible brain damage. So the major risks of occasional use of this lean, panic attacks, psychotic breaks, impaired judgment in critical situations, the risks of regular use and binges, uh, mania, violent ideation, uh, means uh, repetitively violent thoughts, antisocial behavior and paranoia, and in fact, the woman he was on the phone with, Janteel, did describe him as paranoid during the time that he was on the phone with her when he was walking home. And again, this doesn't prove anything. These word games don't mean anything. It's just important information to have. So, regular use can cause habituation and psychological addiction, tolerance and physical addiction, psychosis, liver, kidney, and pancreas damage. And in fact, Martin's liver indicated the beginning stages of an unusual degrading known as mild fatty metamorphosis, and its brain tissue appeared compromised, both conditions symptomatic of DXM use, though not proof of damage from DXM. Uh, So somebody writing um, with advice on how to uh, deal with people who are taking this drug say, be very careful in trying to restrain the tripper since here she may perceive this as a threat and will probably be mostly immune to pain. The tripper, like a cornered animal, could beat the living shit out of you without thinking twice. And again, this does prove nothing. Uh, These are possible indications of what might have happened. I just want to be clear about that. So what happened? So before this time, February 2nd, 2012, Zimmerman called 911, concerned that a young black man was scouting a burglary location and said, I don't want to approach him personally. By the time the police arrived, the man was gone. So this is not somebody who goes around uh, stalking and so on. And people use these words like, Zimmerman was stalking Trayvon Martin, that this is not even remotely accurate, um, which we'll get to in a little bit. The stalking is a very specific legal term. It's a repetitive harassment fear. And so this is not for people who met the first time. So four days later, after February 2nd, 2012, two young black men burglarized another house in the community. One was caught with stolen goods on him. February twenty sixth, 2012, Zimmerman called the non-emergency number of the local police department to report a suspicious person walking slowly between houses through the rain, seemingly on drugs. Now, right after Trayvon Martin bought his candy and soft drink, uh, three young men came in to buy uh, blunts, which are, you know, small cheap cigars that you can hollow out and put marijuana in, or <laughs> so I've heard... And uh, he he may have met them, he may have known them afterwards. Uh, There's no particular video footage, um, but there's some indication that he may have known them. Uh, And so he may have been actually on drugs at that time, or he may have picked up ingredients for drugs, which, you know, if you're an addict, it kind of makes sense that you're going to do that walk in the rain. Um, So it's possible that he was already on drugs. The young man approached Zimmerman in his car, then ran away. Zimmerman apparently got out of his car to monitor Martin and told the dispatcher what he was doing. And the dispatcher replied, okay, we don't need you to do that. This is a point of great contention for people following this trial. If only Zimmerman had stayed in his car, if only he had listened to the dispatcher, then none of this would have occurred. And we will get to that, the legality of that in a sec. So Zimmerman lost track of Martin, but Zimmerman said that first he wanted to walk and check out the street signs to see exactly which one he was at. Before he returned to his car, they changed names occasionally, which is part of why he wanted to make sure, despite familiarity, with the neighborhood. Now, this is kind of what he's supposed to do. He's a neighborhood watch captain, uh, which the community organized because the police can't protect people. We all know that, uh, which is really tragic. But so he was part of the, This is what he's supposed to do. Uh, and the police are always saying, you know, if you see something, say something, report suspicious activity and so on, right? So after doing this, um, Zimmerman says he was returning to his car. As he was returning to his car, Zimmerman asserts that Martin confronted him, demanding to know what his problem was. Zimmerman replied that he had no problem, at which point Martin basically said, well, now you have a problem, and punched him in the nose, uh, breaking or fracturing it and knocking him backwards onto the sidewalk. According to eyewitness testimony, Martin jumped on top of Zimmerman, punching him in the face and pounding his head into the concrete. At this point, of course, Zimmerman can't can't see and can't breathe, right? He's, his blood is pouring back from his nose into the back of his mouth, he's choking, uh, he can't see, uh, and he can't uh, breathe. So he's already in a desperate panic, as, as anybody would be in that situation. Witnesses report Zimmerman was screaming for help. Uh, the mothers of uh, both Zimmerman and Martin report that it was their sons who were screaming for help. One witness described Martin pummeling Zimmerman with an MMA technique called ground and pound, According to Zimmerman, see, Zimmerman was having his head pounded, you know, against the concrete pavement. And he knew that he was close to the grass and he was trying to shimmy up to uh, get his head to be pounded on the grass rather than the concrete because he was terrified of losing consciousness and and dying. When he was shimmying himself, uh, according to him, his uh, his, um, coat rode up and Martin saw his gun and said, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker, and reached for the gun. Zimmerman grabbed the gun, uh, shot at Martin. This is important. If he would say shot Martin, well, if he's half blind and choking and it's raining and it's nighttime, I mean, the idea that he can sort of aim and he's just pulling and shooting wildly, that would be my guess. Uh, The bullet passes through Martin's chest, injuring his heart, and he may have been able to speak for 10 to 15 seconds, and Zimmerman reports that Martin said, you got me, and then he may have lived from one to three minutes afterwards. So... Of course, you could easily say, well, Zimmerman is just making up a whole bunch of stuff. He's saying whatever is convenient and so on. And for those who say that the stand-your-ground law has anything to do with this, I can only tell you that you're actually not correct about that. Stand-your-ground is if somebody is approaching you, you don't have the duty to retreat. If somebody is on top of you and pounding you, there's no possibility of, um, of any kind of retreat. Um, so the stand-your-ground law is irrelevant. to This is classic self-defense. But the important thing is that Zimmerman's account is corroborated by all available evidence. Um, And the prosecution did not overturn any of the available evidence, which corroborates Zimmerman's accounts. There were no injuries on Trayvon Martin's body except for the gunshot wound and injuries to his knuckles, which obviously come from punching someone. Zimmerman's head had lacerations. Uh, His nose had been broken or or fractured. He had sustained two black eyes and a coccyx injury. And Zimmerman had uh, grass stains on the back of his jacket, which would be in accordance with uh, his testimony. And a police detective actually lied to or misled Zimmerman while he was interviewing him after the incident. And he said the entire assault had been caught on video camera. And Zimmerman's response was thank God, not unimportant. Now, people say Zimmerman should not have followed Martin. Well, it's irrelevant to the law. Um, If you look at anything that happens, there's always a causal chain of effect that goes beforehand. And if you take any of those dominoes out, something wouldn't have happened. But let's say Martin was someone who was going to do another home invasion. He wasn't, but let's say he was going to do another home invasion, and Zimmerman had decided to stay in his car. Well, then you say, well, he should have gotten out of his car because then somebody died, right? So you can go back and and sort of replay anything and say that there are different choices that could have been made. But that's only with the full information that you have – Looking back, right, hindsight is 2020. The point of this trial, as is the point of any criminal trial, is to determine whether a defendant accused of violating one or more criminal statutes will be found guilty or acquitted. That's all it's about. Will a defendant accused of violating one or more criminal statutes statutes be found guilty or acquitted? Now, in his neighborhood watch capacity, Zimmerman decided to watch Martin. The police dispatcher said that Zimmerman did not need to follow Martin. This is not an order. This is this is no binding authority. This is a standard line, not situation dependent and not authoritative authoritative or enforceable in any way whatsoever. Like if a police officer tells you to do something, you have to obey. If someone at the other end of a 911 call tells you, you don't, we don't need you to do that or it might be better to do this, not authoritative, not binding in any way, shape or form. Uh, so, if uh, if you see someone you know hanging from bushes at the edge of a cliff, and you call nine one one, and the guy's like, "Help me! Help me! I'm about to fall," and you say, um, "I need help. This guy's about to fall off a cliff," and they say, "Well, our nearest cruiser is ten minutes away," and you say, "Well, I'm going to go help him." They actually will tell you, "We don't need you to do that." They actually cannot give you orders because they're legally liable if they give you orders. So um, the fact that the the, the dispatcher said, we don't need you to do that, uh, is not binding, is not authoritative in any way, shape or form. So it has nothing to do with the law whatsoever. The Zimmerman decided to keep an eye on Martin. That's a perfectly legal action. In fact, it's encouraged by the police as a whole. They often work with neighborhood watches to make sure that this kind of stuff occurs. There's no law anywhere in the United States that prevents one person on a public street from watching another person on a public street. Uh, you, there, there's no right of privacy when walking down a public street. So, Zimmerman broke no laws by being in the neighborhood watch, by believing that Martin was acting suspiciously, by calling the police to tell them what he was doing and asking for assistance, by declining the dispatcher's suggestion to stop observing Martin. Not illegal in any way, shape, or form. Continuing to observe Martin without making contact or interfering with his free actions is all perfectly legal. Now, when Martin was bugged, annoyed, frightened or angry at the man he referred to as a creepy ass cracker, when he went up to Zimmerman and said, what the fuck is your problem, homie? You didn't break any law. You can verbally confront people. That's fine. And when Zimmerman said, I don't have a problem, when he tells Zimmerman, well, now you have a problem, all perfectly legal. If he'd said to Zimmerman, Fuck off. Stop following me. I'm like right here. I live with my father girl- and his girlfriend. Perfectly legal and, and would have ended the, the problem. Uh, there would have been nothing further. However, right, so these are the steps around the law. The moment that Martin punches Zimmerman in the face, well, now he's committed a crime. So nothing Zimmerman did was illegal but what Trayvon Martin did in punching him in the face was illegal. Now, in some jurisdictions in the U.S., the first punch might be classified as a misdemeanor. Still a crime, but depending on the mood of the DA, might be a misdemeanor. But once Zimmerman is on the ground and Martin attacks him again, it is no longer a misdemeanor. This almost automatically becomes felony battery, a significant crime. Once Martin allegedly said, you're going to die tonight, motherfucker, and began smashing Zimmerman's head into the concrete, either or, this becomes attempted murder. If we accept, right, this is important to remember, if we accept Zimmerman's testimony and the eyewitness accounts and the physical evidence, at this point, he can't see, he can't breathe, he's being told he's going to be murdered and his skull is being smashed repeatedly into concrete. Forget race, forget age. Forget cherubic pictures. Forget all the portraits that the media has painted of a racist, of uh, white-on-black crime. uh, At this point in the interaction, Zimmerman cannot breathe. He cannot see. He's just been told he's going to be murdered, and his head and skull are being smashed repeatedly into concrete and he's, he's got a gun on him, but he has waited for over 40 seconds from the beginning of the altercation. He still has not fired his weapon or reached for it. If that situation, if we accept what the evidence and the eyewitnesses and Zimmerman's testimony say, if we accept that, you can reject anything you want. I mean, you can make up anything you want in this world. If we accept that, If that doesn't justify self-defense, then there's no such thing as self-defense at all. And this is why the police let him go, because they couldn't find any evidence to counteract his claim of self-defense. It doesn't matter. I mean, the the media has been uh, unbelievably reprehensible in this, saying that Zimmerman referred to young black men as fucking coons when he actually said it's fucking cold, which I guess it was. They edited a tape to make him sound racist so they edited a tape and played Zimmerman saying something like, he looks suspicious, he looks like he's up to no good, he looks black. You know, so that these sort of, but that's not what happened. What happened was, he looks suspicious, he looks up to no good, and the dispatcher said, what is his race? Is he white, Hispanic, or black? He looks black. Right? He was actually asked about the race, and the media edited that out to make him look racist. I mean, you're in a matrix of race-baiting, which is going to have catastrophic consequences unless we hold fast to the facts. He said, these assholes always get away. He's not referring to black people because he's friends with black people. his business partners with black people. His wife is best friends with black people. He tutors black kids for free. He's talking about thieves. There's a plurality of young black male thieves in this situation. That's who he's referring I mean, that's my guess. The paint him as a racist. Anyway. So let's talk a little bit about race. We can have frank discussions as adults with facts, I hope. So some of the writers um, were, after this incident, talking tragically. you say, I have two, the writer in the New York Times said, I have two young uh, black teenage sons, and I'm terrified of them going out into the world and getting shot by whites. Well, okay, let's look at some numbers. I don't mean to shock anyone with some facts. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, between 1976 and 2011, there were 279,384 black murder victims. Appalling, shocking, wretched, terrible. At about 262,621 of those, black victims were murdered by other blacks. So I don't think it's white on black violence that you need to be majorly concerned about. And let's look at some potential roots of black on black violence or black violence as a whole. It's tragic. It's terrible. I mean, there's a whole, I mean, obviously the history of racism, history of violence uh, perpetrated against blacks uh, being stripped of rights and property. Um, The black family was actually quite strong in the 1950s. There were illegitimacy rates lower than that of the white community. Uh, Welfare has been a huge problem. Uh, Blacks are exposed to terrible, wretched, horrible educational systems. Uh, There's uh, a war on drugs, uh, which has disproportionately been tempting for black youths to get involved in as a way of getting easy money. At the same time, as there's been a death in manufacturing and a huge spike in the minimum wage, which has meant lower skilled uh, people don't have as much in easy access to, you know, the basic three things that you need to do to get into the middle class, right? You need to finish high school, uh, you need to get and keep a job uh, for at least a year, and you need to not have a child out of wedlock. Those are three things. Statistically, if you do those three things, you are fine, you are set to go. But there's so much that's working against the black youth. Uh, I have incredible sympathy for what was going on with, uh, with Trayvon Martin and so many other black youth. It's terrible. But let's look at some of the factors that aren't discussed quite as much. Child abuse in 2009. 44% of child abuse in 2009 involved white children. 22.3% involved black children. Blacks make up 12.4% of the country's population, whites 74.8%. Latinos are 15.8% of the nation's population, but they made up 20.7% of the total population of abused children. So, um, according to these statistics, blacks abuse their children the most, Latinos slightly less, and whites slightly less than that. Again, this is important. Let's look at percentage of children in foster care. American Indian or Alaskan Natives, percentage of total child population 1%, percentage of children in foster care 2%. Asians, percentage of total child population 4%, children in foster care only 1%. That's the kinds of ratios you want to see. African Americans, percentage of total child population 14%, percentage of children in foster care 31%. Hispanic 22% to 20%, white non-Hispanic percentage of total child population 56%. Percentage of children in foster care, 40%. I uh, will link you below to a number of studies that have, I think, fairly well proven that this is not due to uh, racism on the part of uh, CPS or the police. So, the fourth national incidence study on child abuse and neglect, called the NAS 4, 09 to 2010, was a report to Congress. This is quotes in nearly all cases, the rates of maltreatment for black children were significantly higher than those for white and Hispanic children. These differences occurred under both definitional standards in rates of overall maltreatment, overall abuse, overall neglect, and physical abuse, and for children with serious or moderate harm from their maltreatment. They also occurred in the incidence of sexual abuse, in the incidence of children who were inferred to be harmed by maltreatment, and in endangerment standard rates for physical neglect, emotional maltreatment, and children who were endangered but not demonstrably harmed by their maltreatment. While general declines in rates of maltreatment were noted since the NIS 3, these declines did not occur equally for all races and ethnicities. Rather, rates of maltreatment for white children declined more than the rates for black and Hispanic children in the incidence of abuse, physical abuse and children seriously harmed by maltreatment. For emotional neglect, maltreatment rates for white children declined while rates for black and Hispanic children increased for emotional neglect rates for white children increase less than the rates for black and Hispanic children. Now, I will link below to a presentation, The, truth about, or the Facts About Spanking, which show that spanking increases aggression, increases social conflict, decreases IQ, and increases likelihood for criminality, drug use, promiscuity, smoking, teen pregnancy, you name it. It's one of the worst things that can happen to any human being. Um, so, as we all know, Um, Black culture in the U.S. is heavily skewed to the matriarchal side, let's say. Uh, Only 37% of black children live with both parents. The remaining 63% live with one parent or with other relatives, and it's mostly the mom, right? It's mostly the mom. And a lot of black kids have no relationship with their fathers at all. In recent studies, children are somewhat more likely to be maltreated by female caregivers or perpetrators than males, 68% 68% of the maltreated children were maltreated by a female, whereas 48% were maltreated by a male. In general, women abuse children more than men. The differences are not staggering. It's not like 20 to 1, but it's important. If you have a more matriarchal society, likelihood is that you're going to have more child abuse. Female perpetrators were more often responsible for neglect. 86% of children neglected by females versus 38% by males. To be fair, to balance, 87% of children were, abused, were sexually abused by a male. 11% were sexually abused by a female. Let's just play a little clip. You know, it's about a minute. It's, it's this is President B. Hussein Obama talking to the NAACP about how wonderful it is and what a great society we would live in if only we hit our neighbor's children more or encouraged the parents to hit. Uh, well, he calls it whooping, which is hitting, uh, often with implements. Um, and just imagine, if he was talking this way, about women, that, you know, if your woman disobeys you or misbehaves, it's important to give her a good whooping and that's gonna make everything better.
1: To parents, to parents, we can't tell our kids to do well in school and then fail to support them when they get home. You can't just contract out parenting. For our kids to excel, we have to accept our responsibility to help them learn. That means putting away the Xbox, putting our kids to bed at a reasonable hour. It means attending those parent-teacher conferences and reading to our children and helping them with their homework. And by the way, it means we need to be there for our neighbors' sons and daughters. We need to go back to the time, back, back to the day, when parents saw somebody, saw some kid fooling around, and it wasn't your child, but they'll whoop you anyway. Or at least they'll tell your parents. Their parents though, you know.
0: I don't think anything more needs to be said about that. So here's an example. So Atlanta Church pastor Creflo Dollar, that is one fine name for a preacher. I guess in Atlanta they have truth and advertising laws. Creflo Dollar was arrested after his 15-year-old daughter called 911 to say that he had choked her and slapped her. He was held in jail for a few hours. He then called his daughter a liar from the pulpit of his 30,000-member church. Uh, the Georgia State Conference of the NAACP and the group's Fayette County, Georgia branch released a statement saying that they were investigating Dollar's arrest on the grounds that he has a right to be a, quote, responsible parent and discipline his children. Boy, we've come a long way from W.E.B. Du Dubois, prominent black activist of quite some time ago, who said that the uh, black child should exist in a haven of peace and security within his own home. Now it's, uh, you can choke your daughter if she questions you about whether she should go to a party or not. 89% of black parents, 79% of white parents, 80% of Hispanic parents and 73% of Asian parents say that they have spanked their children. Disproportionately goes up. If you are raised by, this is not to characterize all black women or all black single moms or anything like that, but statistically, if you're much more likely to be raised by a physically abusive or neglectful single mom, well, does this go some ways towards explaining rap lyrics? I think it's possible. And this is another quote, uh, from comedians and superstar radio personalities who preachers and YouTube videos of child beatings and, Barack Obama, black culture encourages and even celebrates the beating of children. And, uh, I'm sorry, just I can't find any way in which white people are making black people do that. I just, I'm happy to be corrected. Maybe there's some nefarious mind ray called Hit Your Children that even my pasty ass dome is portraying, but I think that's something the black community kind of got to look at themselves. And you know, some some of them have done that, which I think is great. So, the attempt to put everything through the lens of race is um, incredibly volatile. I think it's incredibly destructive. I think it turns us who are generally you know, tax livestock and play things with the ruling classes, it turns us against each other. And it makes us worry about each other rather than the people who are selling off our future, uh, who are printing our money into a status fear oblivion cloud of nothingness, uh, who are starting and sending us to wars, who are throwing massive numbers of people in prisons for having the wrong vegetation on their person. Uh, we've got to remember that if we keep focusing on fighting each other, we will never find the real enemies and the true liberation, which is to break out of this historical hierarchy and find a way to live in peace without all of this brutality and these medieval prisons. And police with fascist weaponry, there's much better ways for us to deal with life, and to find peaceful ways of solving our problems, rather than appealing to the state and the race baiters and all the people who turn us against each other, rather than having us look upwards to the real
1: masters, and free ourselves from that. Thank you.